This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Hey, this is Lou Mangello from WW Radio, and when I'm not at Walt Disney World or sharing my passion for Disney World or eating, I am Stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and how do you climb out of an endless financial abyss? Is there any wisdom that can help you turn the tide? Here to help us, from the Everyday Courage podcast, we welcome Jillian Johnsrud. And from LentPenzo.com, it's Daddy Warbucks. <laughs> Only one person on this podcast is old enough to get that joke, so we just had to grab Len Penzo. Last but not least, it's the one, the only, oh, Paula? Oh, Paula! Awesome. Plus, we'll welcome the head of a digital bank serving an underserved community. And they have a unique way of paying high-interest bonuses to savers. We'll get the skinny on Quantic Bank from Steve Schnall during today's Friday FinTech segment. Later, we'll magnify Nick's money, and I'll culture you with some Shakespeare-themed trivia. And speaking of Shakespeare, here comes a guy who's probably less Romeo and a little more King Lear court jester, Joe Saul Seahide. And I'll take that as a compliment. He's usually the smart guy that tells the truth, right? And I'm sure Doug doesn't know that. Hey, everybody, welcome to Friday. Let me be the first to welcome you. I'm Joe Saul Seahide, Average Joe Money on Twitter and... Mr. OG's not here today, so we're going to start off in a... Are we still calling it an undisclosed location, Paula? Are, are you in an undisclosed yeah. location, or are you now in a disclosed location? I will be in an undisclosed location. I will be in the ephemeral ethereal of in-between <laughs> lands. 
I just, I just don't know where we're at with this FBI witness protection thing that you got going on. Don't know where we're at. That's exactly the point. <laughs> Ta-da! She's like, and it's working. So how are you doing this fine Friday? I am excellent. I just had a sushi lunch because I'm fancy like that. Of course. Yes. Yes. Well, we're going to, so, we're so, going to follow it up okay. with Shakespeare, by the way, sushi and Ooh. Shakespeare today. Sushi and Shakespeare. That is really good enunciation. Sushi and Shakespeare. Yes. With a, yeah. With a side of systemic poverty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not a laughing matter there, but a guy who keeps us laughing on this show deep under Los Angeles in his bunker, Mr. Len Penzo. Yes. The worst kept secret in America is the location of my bunker. Unlike Paula, who's in an undisclosed, mine's completely disclosed and terrible. Terrible. Everybody knows where I'm at. Do you actually have, does like the UPS person knock on your manhole cover to bring you, <laughs> bring you stuff, bring you your new MREs? No, they actually, uh, they have to ring in and, uh, because there's mines and there's, you know, it's, there's a minefield between the entrance to the bunker and the property line. And they know that. So, uh, they keep their distance, Joe. They leave it a healthy, like they leave it right there, right at the property line. Perfect. Yes, that's right. Fantastic. Yeah. And the woman who's wondering what she's doing on this property today, it's like, what the heck's going on? The woman behind the Everyday Courage podcast, she's finally here. It's about time. Jillian Johnson joins us. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome to this party. And for the three people that don't know about your awesome podcast, tell us what it's about. The idea behind Everyday Courage is that most progress in life requires a little bit of courage, but not like huge heroic courage, just like the ordinary courage of, you know, trying to apologize, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, that normal growth. So we chat about that in, in the terms of money and personal growth, work, all those categories. Yeah, it's like the intersection of all three of those, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good to, yeah, good times. Well, I'm glad you're with us today. We're going to have a great time. You told us ahead of time you were trying to explain the Stacking Benjamin show to your husband. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I described it, uh, take this as a compliment, if you can, um, a little bit like Animaniacs. If you guys remember that show, like from the 90s, it has a little bit of that fun vibe to me. And he was like, oh, great. So it's like this really fun podcast. And I was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, poverty. <laughs> So I've been working all morning on how to uh, bring my animaniac spin to to poverty. Not sure if I'm going to get there, but we'll see. The bar is high, Jillian. And I'm wondering, because I'm watching Paula on the shortwave radio, like smiling and nodding. There's no way in hell you know what animaniacs are. I do know what animaniacs are. Who are you? You Uh, Because Tiny Toons was one of my favorite cartoons as a kid uh, with Babs and Buster Bunny. It is a freaky Friday here on the show. We got Jillian here. We got Paula here. I think, I think it's Paula. We got (laughs) Led here. We're going to have a very, very rare for this show, serious discussion about poverty and climbing out of the hole. So let's get started. Normally, our posts uh, that we focus on, if you're new to the show, come from popular financial bloggers 
and we get inspiration for our conversations from them. Today, we had inspiration from Reddit, which we don't do very often. But this discussion on Reddit began with a rant, and the headline is what caught our team's attention, which was this, does anybody else find being poor absolutely exhausting? And the person writes back again for another rant. I feel like I can't go one day without thinking about being poor. I'm constantly planning and budgeting and thinking of ways to make money. When I'm not working, I'm calling places to attempt to get extensions on my bills. I'm doing surveys and scanning receipts several times a week for pocket change. I'm just tired physically and mentally. I'm tired. I couldn't imagine what a small hand up could do for me. Like if I could just get ahead for a little bit, I'd be fine. Dot, 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 dot. And I thought, what a great place to start a conversation. It certainly started one on Reddit. There were 632 <laughs> responses to this one particular thing. But this this hit me hard because, and, and by the way, just a spoiler alert, we're not going to solve poverty in the next 20 minutes because there's no easy solution. And I, I feel like sometimes people think there's a very easy solution to poverty. And yet it's so systemic, not just around the United States, but around the world that clearly there aren't easy solutions. But Jillian, I know a little bit about your story. I won't say I'm the Jillian expert, but you've experienced poverty in your life. Did this resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. It is exhausting. And, you know, I think this year has actually been a helpful insight because before there wasn't many things that we could say, yeah, it's like going through this. But to some degree, I think it's like going through 2020 in that between the pandemic and just all of the things that were happening in our country, more people got to experience this, just this mental and emotional bandwidth suck of, of feeling drained, of not being able to focus, of just being distracted. For me, it was maybe 20% of what it was like growing up, but it's still a taste of that feeling overwhelmed all the time. Were there days when you just didn't want to get out of bed? This year or growing up? <laughs> well, let's <laughs> let's talk about growing up. Let's talk about the poverty part. The, the answer for me the last year was yes. Yes, there were days, but but growing up. The thing with some kinds of poverty is you're so close to the edge that you run on like cortisol and adrenaline and fear all the time. Mm. I would say sleeping well is a little bit harder than getting up because you're you're hypervigilant because you have to be because everything is feels risky and dangerous. So it's more of a hypervigilance is kind of how I how I experienced it. Linda, have you ever experienced poverty? Poverty, no, because when I think of poverty, to me, that's – what is it in terms of the United States? I think the United States considers, what, 12000 or 15000 a year or something under that as you're, you're impoverished. No. I will say this though, um, and I can't imagine, but I when I was growing up, my parents were really struggling. We weren't, we weren't impoverished, but there were days when – you know, they used to put those signs out, like if you don't pay your water bill and they would come and they would put, they would post a sign in your front yard. I mean, so everybody could see it. You know, your water bill is 20 or 30 days past due. And if you don't pay it in the next three days, you know, we're shutting, shutting off your water. I don't know if they still do that, but they used to do that back then. They'd post the sign right in our front yard. Just shame you in front and of I the remember neighborhood. That. Yeah. I was ashamed and, and it wasn't my parents' fault. It was just, they didn't have the money at times and they were short. And there were times when I remember my mom and dad sitting at the kitchen table 
saying, you know, we're really, we only have a hundred dollars for groceries, you know, and it's got to last for two weeks. And this is way back when, which, you know, that still went further, but my mom was cutting every coupon she possibly could. And it was scary. I mean, as a child, I was kind of scared, you know, going, gosh, are we gonna have enough food to eat? But no, we weren't impoverished in that way, but we were, things were very tight for a long time. That's a secondary piece we're not going to get to is, is which you hear that story a lot of, uh, not scaring children in the family. I mean, if you're really wondering where your next meal is going to come from, not scaring, not scaring the kids. Paula, to move this conversation forward, I want to ask you a question just about the financial space, because as I went looking for serious articles on poverty and mm-hmm. thought pieces on poverty, I got two things. One were pieces that I would say said that it's systemic, it's complex. Like we said, we're not going to solve it today. But then there was the other side which is stop being so lazy, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do this. You can be the person that breaks a cycle, change your mindset, and you're going to be much better. Why do we, why do so many people, and, and even when we talk about this, like in our Facebook group, sometimes we have people that talk about poverty that way. Why do we want to convince ourselves that this is just a easy thing to solve? We can just get up and go. Well, what I think is, a shame about the the way that that's cast as an either or, right? Like that's cast as two sides that are in opposition to one another. And you either believe A or you believe B, you know, like they're two different parties or like they're two different sports teams. When the comprehensive picture is that it is absolutely true that there are systemic, deeply entrenched issues, intersecting issues that are involved in poverty. And yet, if our response is to say, therefore, you have no power, therefore, there's nothing you can do, then what we do is we disempower people who are already living in poverty. And what kind of humans would we be if we were to send a message that disempowered the people who are already at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder? And so I think it's important to send a message of personal responsibility insofar as it is both sent and received as a message of empowerment rather than a message of shame. I love that. A gentleman has been on the show twice. John Hope Bryant has a very similar discussion. Uh, He talks about how the system is built against you, but that's not a reason to not try. That's a reason to try harder, right? To know that every day it's going to be a difficult climb, but that means you climb, you climb harder. Right. I like the phrase, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Oh, that's, that's, that's very good. So Jillian, Mm -hmm. let's take this in two ways. Number one, uh, for yourself, for this person here, they're so tired being in poverty. What would you tell them? It is tricky because you're already so tired and and it can be discouraging because your progress on the front end is going to be slow. You just don't have that that compound interest working for you. And the reality is if 95% of your bandwidth is used up, you're only going to be working with 5%, which is kind of it's kind of the short end of the stick, but you just have to do the very best you can with that 5%, like the first step we all have to have is hope. It's so easy to be hopeless and it's so easy to give up. And so you have to kind of develop a perspective that's like, yeah, this is going to, this is going to take a long time and this is going to be really hard, but I'm going to do everything that I can do, everything that I have to do 
to make it at least a little bit better because as it gets a little bit better, as you have like a thousand dollar emergency fund, it frees up a little bit more mental, emotional bandwidth as like things get paid down, you have a little bit of margin you'll have more bandwidth to do more things down the road. It's just, it's just slow going. And I think about like, what's the price of admission and it's high and sometimes it's unfair, but it's kind of finding that gumption to be like, okay, well, this is the cost, I guess. Guess they better get going. I love that perspective, but, and you've such a, I mean, it is, that it's a nice longer term perspective, right? That you have to build that foundation. But I remember being in this spot. I was uh, searching in my very beat up minivan for a couple quarters that I could put in a gas tank because I'd run out of gas. And I, number one, couldn't figure out how to get home. And then number two, I also, once I got home, I had no idea how I was getting to work the next day because I was just clean out of money and, and out of resources. But what is it? I mean, is it, is, does that perspective come with education? Is it surround sound? Is it, um, what is it? How do you start to get a longer term view where you can say, well, I'm going to go ahead and be okay with these little incremental improvements? For me, it was books from the library. I took that little bit of bandwidth and I started reading. And I started reading a book a week. And that gave me access to the second thing that I think is so powerful. And that's relationships. Like you need people who are out of this, this, that thick that you're in, that can offer that perspective, that can offer that encouragement. But I didn't have access to those relationships, but books gave me that. I could read a book and then I had something to talk about with people who were in very different life situations than I was. That's powerful. Len, for you, uh, surrounding yourself with the right people, how important has that been to your success? Uh, it's been very important. Absolutely. You, wanna, you always want to have the right people around. But I, I think one of the big things you need to do is going back to the question you asked Jillian was, I think self-discipline. You've got to have discipline. And none more so when you are down and out and just things are desperate. You have got to take control of your life and look inward and say, I'm going to do this no matter what. And so set some small goals, start small, make them achievable and modest as they may be. You, even if they're not going to get, you know, you might not pull you out of poverty within six months or three months. Maybe it's going to take a year, but have that goal, work towards it and then leverage whoever you can. And now we'll get back to the relationships. Everybody, you know, share those goals with people, you know, anybody that can help you. I don't care if you're having trouble getting a job, write down those goals, go ahead. When you're looking for a job and you're going out and you're talking to a potential employer, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, a McDonald's or wherever you're going to go to get started. You say where, you know, where you're at, these are your goals. This is what you want to do. And, and just start working towards those goals and just, you've got to do it yourself. You have to dig deep. You have to, that's because if no, if nobody's going to help, I know the government has assistance, but in the end, it's up to you. You have to do it yourself, no matter how hard it is. And it gets very hard, Len, where, when you're being beaten every day, like every day you're getting oh, yeah. beaten over and over and over and over and over. I can totally, yeah, it's got to be hopeless for people to feel hopeless, but you, once you feel hopeless, there's no, you're not going to get out of that. You're going to spiral down. You've got to fight that want to say it's hopeless because like I said, you, you have to do it yourself and you have to depend on you. 
You know, with not just what Len just said, Paula, but also what Jillian said earlier, surrounding yourself with the right thoughts and the right people and having the self-discipline also means maybe cutting some of the people that are around you, mm-hmm. some of the relationships that you have. How do you start off on that journey? Well, I think the, the most important cuts that you make are the people who tell you that it's impossible. They are the people who plant doubts because those doubts will hold you back. If you are setting an ambitious goal to break the cycle, you know, which is one of the hardest things that a person can do, you need to surround yourself with people who are like, yes, you can break the cycle. Yes, you can beat the odds. Yes, you can be the outlier. And if you are surrounded by people who have already given up and they want you to give up alongside them so that they can feel better about their own decision to give up, like crabs in a bucket, they're just trying to pull you back down. Those are definitely the relationships you've got to cut. And that doesn't just apply, uh, you know, to people in poverty. I mean, I think that also applies to people in the middle class who are trying to ascend into the upper middle class. That's also a hard rung on the ladder to traverse. And there are a lot of people who are going to say, like, you can't do it. I so badly, while you were talking, wanted to interrupt and say, I really doubt that, Paula. (laughs) <laughs> I so, I so, and I held back, but not completely. Yes. Jillian, when you, when you were telling people that you had to disengage with them, did you say you're a crab in my bucket? You're dragging me down? Uh, no, but as a kid, you don't really have a ton of choices of who your social circle is. And I grew up in a really small town. And especially as a kid, I don't know if people had a very high opinion of me when I was little because I was dyslexic. And in grade school, I just did not seem very bright. I couldn't read. I couldn't do math. I couldn't write. I had extreme social anxiety. So I was shy as all get out. And so that first person for me was Oprah. Oh, wow. Every day I would come home from school and I would grab a Pop-Tart and I would sit in front of the TV and Auntie Oprah would show up. And she was the one who gave me that message. She would introduce me to all these cool people. She would bring people around the house and say, have you, have you met this person who wrote this book? Have you heard this person's story? And it, it kind of created this buffer of maybe more is possible than, than what everyone around me is saying, what everyone else's opinion of me is. She had unwavering belief in me, just like a good auntie should. That's super cool. I think that's awesome. Just by once again, just like the library, reaching out and finding this, this positive, positive role model. Let's get tactical here for a second, guys, because there are things that people need to know. Jillian earlier talked about the foundation, right? That there are some basic things that you need to build. In fact, I'm, I'm on a piece right now at self.inc talking about educating yourself on basic financial literacy, how credit works and how to build credit responsibly your options when it comes to financial products and institutions. Cause you see people, of course, and there's a special place in hell for these people, but we always report on people that are in poverty who are getting just completely screwed and cheated out of the little bit of money they have by some financial institutions. And then your rights when it comes to banking and financial products. But, but Len, tactically, where do you start on that foundation? If you're trying to build your way, build your ladder out. Well, let's go to the old pay yourself first, right? So before those creditors, don't pay those creditors a dime. You keep that money for you and you build up your savings. 
because you know what? You're never going to get out of that hole. You're never going to get out of the hole. I think that's a number one. I will second that at that time of life when I was searching for those quarters, I had to let the phone go ahead and ring. I had to not talk to my creditors anymore. I had to let it yep. go. And by the way, there was so much shame. I felt so much shame about that I couldn't do anything. But my mentors taught me that without that emergency fund, I was going nowhere. And if I was ever going to pay people back, I had to get that. Like this person says in the Reddit piece, I had to have just one day where crap didn't happen that that just completely sucked. Paula, what else do you think somebody should do tactically to begin the foundation? I would say watch, track, and monitor every single penny. For people who are who have that buffer for people who are middle class. I've often recommended what I call the anti-budget, which is sort of a, a soft, a more intuitive sense of budgeting. But when when you're in poverty or near poverty, when you have a very low income, that's the time to be monitoring every single penny and be very meticulous about that. Very granular. Is that, that kind of sounds like the dentist to me, Paula. Like I had a, I had a client when I was a financial planner who told me, he's like, Joe, this is like going to the dentist. Like I hate going, but once I leave your office, I feel so much happier. I feel so great. And he goes, the dentist mm. is the same way. I don't want to go, but I leave and I'm like, man, that was great. And I'm so glad I did. Tracking every penny sounds exactly like that. Yeah. To me I anyway. mean, it's, it's work, but it's also kind of liberating in that sense because it's work, but it's the work of figuring it out so that it's it's kind of like going to the gym. It's like effort when you're there, but then afterwards you feel really good. Yes. I love working out when I'm done. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> you like, ha I, you love having had worked out. <laughs> yes. And let's end this discussion where we're just getting the first layer of poverty. Jillian, where would you tell people to start besides Oprah? Yeah, I would definitely watch Oprah. <laughs> If you don't have a library, I grew up in a small town, so we didn't have a library. I started with Oprah. You know, that very first step for me was I created an emergency fund as a kid for my family wow. because I was constantly scared. I was scared that we wouldn't have enough money for food. I was scared that the water would be turned off. You know, I was scared we wouldn't have gas in the car. And so I saved up birthday presents, Christmas presents. I got a job as quick as I could and had at least a couple hundred bucks. And it saved our bacon a few times to just be able to like, sometimes you just need that little buffer and then it frees up some of that mental and emotional bandwidth so you can focus on the next things. Uh, and then the next step for us, when me and my husband got married, we didn't make much that first year, like 12,000. We committed to saving half. And the easiest trick to do that is to figure out who in your community is making less money than you are. And how were they pulling it off? And that can kind of, the rubber hits the road sometimes. Okay, yeah, if I made, you know, 20% less, this is the things I might have to give up. But giving those up, even in the short term, is going to create some of that margin. It's going to give you the, the creativity and the motivation to keep going. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. 
Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, if you're new to the show, next up is our Friday FinTech segment where we explore along with you a cool idea that we found in FinTech land. And this is a bank that has been around for quite a while, serving, as we've been talking about today, lots of underserved people, but they also have a really unique high interest savings program for people that want to put deposits into the bank and they pay you in, wait for it, Bitcoin. What's that all about? We're about to find out. But before we do that, Jillian, while you were talking earlier about making sure that your dad had gas in the car, in our car, we always want to make sure my dad didn't have gas in the car, (laughs) which would happen whenever we had ice cream. But that's a whole different thing. But anyway, sorry for that, everybody. Let's talk to Steve Schnall from Quantic Bank. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's our new friend from Quantic Bank, Steve Schnall. How are you, man? I'm doing great, Joe. How about yourself? Happy to be here in the basement with you. Well, I'm so happy that you could join us. Mom is all excited because of some of the things that you guys do that I'd frankly never heard of before. Tell us, though, let's start off with the origin story. I'd love to hear about how fintech founders get their start. Uh, Tell me about you and about uh, Quantic. How did it come to be? Sure. Well, uh, I spent most of my career in mortgage finance. And um, after the last credit crisis, uh, sort of swore out of finance for a while. But when I saw hundreds and ultimately probably more than a thousand banks failed, you know, going into 2009 and 10 and 11, we saw an opportunity. There were a lot of consumers being disintermediated and left out of of banking, both on the lending side and on the depository side. So we went out and tried to find a, a tiny little beat up bank that we could afford to buy and then repurpose to become ultimately a consumer friendly digital bank. And uh, that was 2010. And here we are 12 years later, and we've, we've brought that vision to reality. Where do you think banks were getting it wrong? You say that people were disenfranchised. Where were banks really messing up? There are two distinct sides to what we do. There's Quantic, the lender on the mortgage side, and then there's Quantic, the depository. So on the lending side, after the last credit crisis, and everybody remembers what happened prior to that, there were all these high loan to value, no doc loans, and the world blew up because banks and lenders were being reckless. But what happened as a result of that is there were a lot of credit worthy people who weren't able to obtain mortgages anymore. And so we saw an opportunity to step into that void and become a niche lender where we can serve small business owners, low income households, seniors, people who had difficult to document income, people who simply couldn't get a mortgage, but frankly deserved one. So Quantic is unique in that it's a CDFI, which is a U.S. Department of Treasury designated community development financial institution because we're mission oriented. And our mission as a lender is to lend to underbanked households, low income people, people in low income census tracts. But that includes small business owners who might have resources, but might show low income because COVID 
you know, decimated their P&L uh, or because they're gig economy workers and don't make their money to, and document their income the traditional way. So we um, we built a lending structure where we can make mortgage loans to people who don't fit the box, who don't meet the big bank, Wells Fargo's and Citibank's, you know, pay stub W-2 tax return, debt to income ratio qualify. We look for people who have a story to tell and we make our lending decisions based upon the totality of someone's circumstances. If you could make a meaningful down payment and have good credit, we're not so concerned with what appears on your tax returns. And so that's really how we serve people on the lending side. That was actually my my follow-up question, Steve, was are there different documents you look for? Are there different areas you look at? It sounds like credit score for the individual is huge. We did a deep dive into historical data, and what we learned was, and it wasn't surprising, even through the last you know, economic blowup, people who had significant equity in their property and good credit, regardless of documentation type, no doc, full doc, if you had equity and good credit, those loans performed, those people had the ability to pay. So our thesis is if you've got skin in the game and a historical track record of paying your bills on time, then we'll base our lending decision primarily on that. And in fact, in some cases, we don't even ask for tax returns at all or pay stubs or W-2s. If you're putting down 20% or more and you have great credit, We'll be able to make a loan based upon that. And we're unique in that respect because under the new Dodd-Frank legislation, um, there's actually a law that requires people buying a home to provide income documentation. But as a community development financial institution, we're exempt from that regulation, which enables us to service people that need it most. Boy, you and your team then, Steve, must hear stories all the time about people that are just caught. I mean, on their end, they feel like they're doing all the right things, but according to, to conventional loan and lending standards, they can't get lending. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we, we, that business is growing. We will probably make a billion dollars worth of home loans to people who meet those circumstances, either those in low-income neighborhoods or those who who don't have um, a significant amount of income to document on their tax returns. A lot of a lot of lenders last year got uh, headlines that you know figuratively stretch not just around the corner but way down the block. And I heard all kinds of stories. We reported on lots of stories of people that would want to refinance something and it would take two months to get that done. Are, yeah. are you still seeing lines that long or has the line kind of shortened recently? The line's long, but we've staffed up to handle the volume. So okay. we're, still, yeah, we're still turning out approvals and closings very, very quickly. Uh, idea being service the customer or somebody else will. I would imagine with your online presence too, you're able to service things faster because it seems like with your digital presence, it makes things move. Yeah. So the digital story is really the other side of the business. Oh, let's, so, let's go there. And that's a really cool part of the story. So when when we started this bank, the idea was consumers didn't need branches to go to anymore and that everybody's got a mobile bank in their pocket. Everybody's got online banking. So our theory was if we didn't spend a ton of money building out brick and mortar branches, we can use those savings to be able to pay people more money for their deposits online. So as a digital bank, the value proposition of Quantic is very straightforward. We value your deposit. We use your deposits to make those loans we were talking about. And so we need those deposits to put people in homes. And so we'll pay you for those deposits more than other banks will pay. And a great example is we have a high interest checking account, which pays up to 1% interest on a checking account. Wow. And well, 1% is not a big number compared to every other bank in the country. It's huge. I would say it's a big number right now. 
Yeah, most banks on a checking account pay zero. Right. And so um, what we do, how do we pay you 1%? It's a, it's a partnership with the customer. We require that you, you use your debit card uh, at least 10 times a month. And because when you use your debit card, which is something you do every day anyway, whether you're buying a Starbucks or paying for Netflix or what have you, when you use our debit card, we get paid interchange. So we basically just take that interchange and we pay it back to you in the form of a high interest rate. So that's one of the products. Another product we came up with, which we're really excited about, is our Bitcoin rewards checking product. This is the one that mom couldn't stop talking about, by the way. Yeah, we were the first bank in the country to come out with a Bitcoin rewards debit card. And once again, the theory here is use our debit card and we take the interchange that we earn and we pay it back to you in the form of Bitcoin. So every time you make a qualifying purchase, which is virtually everything other than like peer to peer payments, we pay you back one and a half percent of the amount of the purchase in the form of Bitcoin. So unlike other reward programs, you know, membership miles or airline miles, these rewards can actually appreciate. And so for people who started using our Bitcoin rewards program a few months ago when we launched it, the value of those rewards have already doubled. And we believe in Bitcoin. We believe it's a great store of wealth and wealth builder. And so we're just excited to enable our customers to get access to Bitcoin without having to spend their own money on it and buy it without having to take any risk. Use your debit card, bank with us, we pay you Bitcoin. I have so many questions about that, but as you probably know, Steve, our audience is divided into two types of people, people that know Bitcoin intimately. It's almost like CrossFit, right? They know, they know all you got to do is ask them one question about Bitcoin. And then you're in a 45 minute conversation about how CrossFit or Bitcoin works or on the other side, they don't know anything about it, but they've heard about digital wallets. And we've done stories about people losing their Bitcoin. Is there anything people need to set up on their end? If they're paid in Bitcoin by you? No, we make it really easy. Open a checking account with us. It takes three minutes online. And we automatically then open up an account with you at our partner firm, which is called NIDIG. And NIDIG is, I believe, the, the best in-class Bitcoin custodian in the world because unlike other exchanges, NIDIG keeps our customers Bitcoin in what's called cold storage off the internet. So it can't be hacked. It can't be stolen. So it's simple. Open your checking account, start using your debit card, and all of a sudden you're going to start getting statements showing that you've earned Bitcoin and you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to understand it. You just get Bitcoin and you let it accumulate. Who's the best customer for Quantic on this side, on the savings side? Anyone and everyone who, A, just wants to have a really nice, seamless checking and banking experience, and B, people who want to earn high interest rates on their money or want free Bitcoin. So it's a kind of a no brainer. It is. It is very simple. And are there any, you know, one thing you and I talked about before we hit record here was the big banks, lots of hidden fees, fees all over the place. Tell me about fees structure, working with Quantic Bank, anything that we should watch out for. There's no fees. In fact, we have a network of over 100,000 ATMs, which our customers can use with uh, surcharge free. Uh, we don't charge anything for the checking account. We don't charge anything to custody the Bitcoin. Uh, the only fee you'll pay is if you want to liquidate your Bitcoin, you'll pay a fee associated with that. But that's customary with sure. uh, selling any, any Bitcoin anywhere. Yeah. And that's even to us. That's to the partner. And then to get to Quantic, do I, is it an app at the app store or is it, uh, do I go on the web? How do I get there? You can go to Quantic.com and open the account there. And you can also download our mobile app at the App Store. 
It's a, and and it's interesting. I was looking at the app before we started talking, and it seems like a very intuitive interface, very clean, incredibly clean, like super super easy to use. You guys spend a lot of time on usability. It's actually clean and easy and simple. It doesn't have. We're not building budgeting tools or or any of those. It's just this is a basic, simple to use checking account. Yeah, there's not eight hundred things, eight hundred no, options on it. Yeah. Real easy. Yeah. You pay bills, you can make transfer money, you have Zelle peer-to-peer payments, and of course you can earn Bitcoin or high interest. And if people want more, as Steve said, is Quantic.com. We'll have a link on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Steve, thanks a ton for sharing with us uh, about Quantic. Such an interesting story you guys have, and I'm glad we were able to shine a spotlight on it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the oh hey there trivia fans you just caught me being my normal cultured self you know with the stacking benjamins hitting the big stage on westwood one i think it makes sense to celebrate the more sophisticated holidays vis-a-vis today's talk like shakespeare day gather on the edge of your seats young children to hear what doth chef Iseth cooking up. But before I do, let's get to today's trivia question. You know, at least if you're cultured like I am trying to be by reading these facts off Google for you, that William Shakespeare dude, I mean, uh, fellow, made most of his money at the Globe Theater in England. You know, with plays and probably action movies and maybe performing some concerts and stuff that just totally rocked, going like, you know, the Rufeth, the Rufeth, the Rufeth Estan Fuego. We shall need no aqua. I'm sure we went like that. But hey, speaking of burning, today's question is, what year did the Globe Theater first burn down? I'll be back with the answer faster than you can make a snack run during the intermission. Oh, Doug, I don't know. Hey, if you're brand new to the show, we have a year-long competition on our Friday roundtables where our three main contributors, Len, Paula, and OG, and today, Jillian, you are playing the part of OG, and we're keeping track all year long. We have a tie at the top. Len has six, OG has six, and Paula as she always is this time of year, very, um, very (laughs) naturally settled in with three. So just holding back. And then as we know, in the fall, she's going to make a mad rush happens, (laughs) happens all the time. But that means that uh, Len's going to set the pace as our two-time champ. OG will go second. And uh, that means Jillian, you go second. And then uh, Paula gets uh, to go third. So Globe Theater, my friend, Mr. Penzo, what year did it burn down? I have no clue. I, I don't know anything about this. I don't know what the Globe Theater is. After your no, history a couple of weeks yes, ago with the Civil I, I, War. I, I know. This is, this is a total blind. I can't even tell you exactly when Shakespeare was, was around. Five, ten years ago? Yeah, right. This is embarrassing. Um, I'm going to say probably think this theater's probably was around if it was around in Shakespeare's day, which I'm not even sure when that was. And it probably burned down way before then. Uh, apparently it's burned down many times. I'm going to say 1692. 1692. Jillian? I also don't know. Although I've been there and I've seen a play, so it might be somewhere in my brain. 
but I'm not accessing it. I'm going to go with 1822. 1822. A lot of room between those two guesses, Paula. Ooh. All right. So do I think it was before, after, or somewhere in the middle? (laughs) I'm going to guess before, so I will guess 1691. 1691. Capture the downside. Or the before times. (laughs) Throws a Chelsea Brennan at Len's downside. All right. Well, that's good because that means I was probably close to to being in the ballpark, right, Paula? You probably have a better idea of this than me. I really don't. No, I think think (laughs) that Shakespeare was alive in the 1500s. Oh, geez. Well, I really screwed up. But I don't actually know that for sure. But it's funny. Jillian's the one person that's been there and you just completely (laughs) discounted her. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah. Well, I actually didn't know where the Globe Theater was when Jillian said that she'd been there. I was like, oh, then I'm assuming that this must be in England. I went for Chautauqua. They took us to a gender reversal of Taming of the Shrew. Ah. Ah. Was it fun? It was very fun. Yeah. Cool place. Describe the place. What was it like? It was a theater. (laughs) (laughs) It was rebuilt. Um, (laughs) Right. Did they sell popcorn for $16.95? No. I did buy some very expensive ice cream, though. That's where they get you. That's where they get you. All right. We'd love to tell you which one of you three is closest, but we don't do it that way. We'll be right back. Hey, Staggers is Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend, Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do. A shout out to he is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? A Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, Here's a disclaimer. you got to join and open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st, so get on it, stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account, $5 minimum balance to open. Maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things. They offer 24-7 help for their U.S.-based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to NavyFederal.org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... 
Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Len, you set the stage with 1692. You're shaking your head. Joe, I have no freaking clue on this. <laughs> none. None. Jillian, you said 1822 that it must look like a theater out of the 1800s if you've been there. She's looking at me like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Paula, feeling confident? I guess so. I mean, I don't know. I figured the nature of the question asked when was the first time it burned down, implying that it burned down multiple times. So I figured it was just a safer bet to err on the side of the before times. Well, it's a safe bet that Doug doesn't know, but he's looked it up. So let's see what the answer is. Hello, all of you regal dames and damsels who stacketh the Benjamins. I've been working on some poetry for you, a penny for your thoughts. To be a great podcast about money or not to be a great podcast about money. That is the question. Indeed. All right, all right. I'm just going to come out and say it. All this talk like Shakespeare holiday bullshit really sucks. I mean, it just fucking sucks. How would Shakespeare complain? This doth sucketh? I don't even care, you know? I'm totally over it. Let's get back to today's trivia before I loseth my temper. The question was, since Shakespeare made most of his money at the Globe Theater in England, what year did his paycheck, the Globe Theater, burn down? According to modern estimates... Shakespeare earned what was on par with other famous stars at the time. So when the Globe Theater burned down in 1613, that couldn't have been good for his wallet. I don't know, maybe if he talketh like a human, fans wouldn't have been angry enough to burn it down. What, too soon? All right, I had enough of this Shakespeare dude. See ya! Hey, I was in the right century. Yeah, thanks for anchoring that for me, uh, Len. Hey, hey, Doug, I bite my thumb at you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that from English. I don't remember that at all. I have no idea. Oh, what does that What does that mean? Or, or, well, I can't or even we not talk that. about oh, it. Yeah, I bite my thumb at you. I remember that. I, yeah, I yeah. bite my thumb at you, sir. I bite my. Th it's an insult. It's like I stick my middle finger up at you. I bite my thumb at you. That's yeah, yeah. I don't. I can't even remember what Shakespeare play that was, but I do remember that. Yeah, but there was one. <laughs> let's gonna be bragging about that for the next four days that he remembered the Shakespeare life. Len, when you said that you remembered that from English, it immediately made me think of a pair of boxer shorts with Homer Simpson on it that I once saw, where Homer is quoted as well, saying, I was say, "Are you see? Did you see my underwear?" I was gonna say, when did <laughs> "Well, Homer's quoted as saying, uh, English. Why should I study English? I'm never going to England." Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, before Paula starts gloating too much about winning, finally, Paula. Finally, finally. Now, four, four wins. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take out the magnifying glass and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. Jillian, when you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you know what you find? No. <laughs> That is like 0487 guests, I think. 
it's amazing. You'll find all those financial products you use every day at your brick and mortar bank, nowhere near the best in class because over 92% of all the stuff online available at magnifymoney.com, like savings accounts all ranked, checking accounts all ranked. In fact, I found my Ally Bank high interest savings account at Magnify Money, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money. And today we're going to help Nick magnify his money. Say hi, Nick. Hey, Joe, OG. Got a question for you, quick and easy, down and dirty. Fidelity reached out. Uh, I have a HSA through them. They have a credit card that earns 2% cash back that can be reinvested into a HSA 529 brokerage. So my question comes in is with the utilization rate. I know that people say 30% uh, is where you want to be below 30% so it doesn't negatively affect your credit. Um, while talking it over with some people, uh, they threw out things like you could, if you're going to pay cash for a vehicle, you could put it on your credit card and then pay it off. My question is, is when does this 30% come into effect? Is this like every day? Is, is, as soon as you hit that 30% threshold, you're above that and it negatively affects, or is it once the statement period closes, maybe, uh, hope that makes sense. I appreciate it. Uh, probably not going to help, but, uh, I tried. (laughs) I love the, I love the vote of confidence. Remember Paula, when you were talking about how you should hang around people that are confident about you and your ability. (laughs) Right. Exactly. We can't hang out with Nick because that guy doubts, doubts, doubts us already. Nick, we're going to pull through for you, man. Let's talk a little bit of credit. Uh, Jillian, any thoughts for him? Well, I think it's kind of two separate issues between is this 2% card a good deal and something worth pursuing? And then how much should you, you know, put on your credit cards? So I think kind of tackling both of those separately. Yeah. So, so let's do that. Do you like the 2% deal? Uh, If you really have a hard time saving, it's a great forced saving option to have that 2% go towards one of these accounts but there's a lot of other cards that are at 2% or 1.5% or I have a Costco card that's a little bit higher for gas. You know, my Amazon card's 5%, my Lowe's card's 5%. So it's not like a screaming, oh my gosh, this is something brand new that I've never seen. I have to charge a whole yeah. bunch of money on it kind of deal. Yeah. But if you really need help saving for those things, then cool. Yeah, why not? I'd only be afraid that if he has trouble saving in the first place that he might not pay off the entire balance every month, which kills everything. I mean, the 2%, but if he can pay it off every month and yeah, have that money go into an emergency fund. That's, that's great. Len thoughts. I'm with you. I, you know, those creditors, your report is constantly being updated, right? Because every 30, 45 days, they're sending their credit reports or they're into these bureaus and it's all staggered throughout the month. So your credit score is constantly moving depending on when your creditors are reporting to the to the credit bureaus. So if you're worried about that, you know, it's it's a 30 to 45 day thing. But like Joe said, if you're going to pay that thing off every month, you're not you're not harming your your credit utilization at all. Not long term anyway, unless you're going no. out for something like no. 15 days later maybe. Yeah, you are. But yeah, we've, uh, we, with all the house construction we've had, we've put lots of stuff on our credit cards and you should see my credit score bounce around like in a month, yeah. it will bounce like 60 points, uh, huge bounces. 
that's all those creditors reporting to the bureau, and then they are as in real, almost real time, they are adjusting your score. So that's how it works. Yeah, Paula, anything to add? Yeah, so I just want to piggyback off of that. So yes, as Len said, the creditors report your utilization to the credit bureaus, but that reporting does not coincide with the statement end date. You know, it it happens in an ongoing, continuous sort of way, and it'll happen at least once a month. And so my strategy is that rather than wait until the end of the month and pay everything off on a monthly basis, I'll pay off my credit cards far more frequently than monthly in order to keep that utilization essentially artificially low. So Yeah, but do you really I mean, do you really care? It depends on if I'm going to take out new credit soon or not. So if I know that I'm going to apply for a mortgage like imminently, if I plan to apply for a mortgage in the next three months, yeah. that's when I get really careful about monitoring my credit score. If I don't plan on on applying for a mortgage, then no. You know, if I if I don't plan on taking out any new loans anytime soon, then no, I don't care. The reason I ask that is because I feel like there's a lot of people, and and this, by the way, Nick, is not, uh, this isn't directly a response to your question, but there's a lot of people out there that ask questions about credit all the time and not enough people that ask questions about building true wealth. Mm, we mm -hmm. worry about how credit works, and I'm sure, Nick, you're worried about both of them. So once again, this is not, this is not it, Nick. Nick, don't ask questions about credit. Ask lots of questions and know how it works. But most of the time, I try not to care about my credit. Like I, I try not to. Anybody have anything? Yeah, else hey, Joe, real quick. I, it, yeah. I wanted to just real quick. That's a great point because I, it seems like people are obsessed with their credit score sometimes, overly obsessed. Right. And it's almost unhealthy. You know, it, you don't get bonus points for anything over 740. You don't. It, that's it. 740 is the, is the excellent credit. You get eight. It's great. Hey, you want to bragging rights to say you have eight, 800 or 840 or 850, but yeah. it's it. It's eight, you know. Once it doesn't, you're there, you're there. It doesn't stop me from introducing myself at parties as 815. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, but I, I know my, you know, I catch myself just mentally doing it or the honeybee will do it. We'll say, oh, you know, the credit score just dropped us below 800, went to 792 or whatever, you know, you know, it's like, so what? Who cares? You know, it's okay. Wait, but Len, um, they've modified the credit score so that now the new high is 850. So the... The score that's considered excellent is 800 or above. What? Yeah. So when did that happen? So very. It's, I mean, good, I know the very high. good is 740 to 799, and excellent is 800 to 850. Okay, but I bet you they don't. I don't. I don't think you get any extra bonus points for eight. Okay, maybe they. Call, I know that. I know it's, it's been 850 for a long time, but um, it was 800. It's been 850 for quite a while. It's, but I don't think you get any bonus points for credit. Beyond 740, but be shocked. I would disagree there. Um, you know, particularly if you're trying to take out commercial loans, if you're trying to take out investor loans, there there are many loans that require excellent credit or that will charge you a premium if you have anything less than excellent credit. Wow, I'd be. I'm gonna have to look into that. I, I don't. I somehow I, I'm not sure about that. Len's just sour grapes because he has an A minus in something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still mad because I lost a darn Shakespeare thing. <laughs> He's still way back like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Nick. And you know what? Going back to the poverty discussion we had earlier, I do think that understanding credit, especially when you're trying to climb out of poverty, like my goal is to not worry about it. But frankly, when I, when I was worried about where my next meal was going to come from, I had to intimately know my credit score and I had to know how it worked. And I had to know how the system was being played because I felt like the system was being played against me. Mm. 
which is probably why I'm so adamant that I don't want to care anymore. <laughs> like mm. I just, I want nothing to do with it. Thanks to Nick for asking that question. We're going to send Nick some Stacking Benjamins swag uh, for calling in. If you'd like to ask a question of our team, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. That's going to do it for today, guys. We'll have our guest of honor go last. Let's have Mr. Penzo go first. Len? Yes, thank you for not letting me follow Paula. That's always a bad (laughs) thing for me, especially this week. I got 22 smart money tips everyone can learn by playing doctor. We're playing doctor. Whoa, hey. You know that game. You you know that old child's game. It's a family blog, Len. Yeah, well, okay. It is, but... uh, don't worry. It's a clean story, but it's really entertaining. I think I, I look, I took the time to put this together. I thought I was really clever. Stop by <laughs> lenpenzo.com and see somebody, please. All the work I put into this darn thing. I tried to be as clever as I could. Isn't that clever? Smart money tips by playing doctor. You're, you're going to love it. For people that can't see him, Len is on his knees right now. Please go visit his site, please. All right, let's hear which Nobel prize uh, laureate Paula's interviewing next. Over to you, Paula. Recently on the Afford Anything podcast, we had John Acuff, the author of seven New York Times bestselling books, and he came on the show to talk about overthinking and how to overcome overthinking so that you don't get trapped in analysis paralysis. Next week on the podcast, we're going to have Gorik Ng. He focuses on career management and workforce development at Harvard Business School, and he talks about the unspoken rules. So, What are those rules that you need to know in order to get ahead in in your career, in the workplace, and really on the topic of trying to ascend into a socioeconomic status that you were not born into? You know, a lot of what he talks about relates to that because oftentimes there are social norms that you might not be familiar with, but that you are expected to know. And so he talks about how that can be a disadvantage if you didn't come from a culture like or a background where you learned some of these unspoken rules and how making sure that people understand those unspoken rules um, is a big part of career success and is a big part of, of you know, building wealth. On the Afford Anything podcast. Yes, on the Afford Anything podcast. But this this little school, Harvard, never never heard of it. Maybe up and coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's a, uh, you know, I, I I think it's pronounced Harvard. It might be Harvard. 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 I think that's a cheese. Harvardy. Yes. Harvardy. Delicious. Yes. Fantastic. He's a professor at Harvardy. Uh, he's not a professor. He works specifically with career development at Harvard Business School. He's very cheesy. <laughs> no, no. Cheesy? Oh, yes, because he is. For, for, never mind, Paula. We're, we're on totally different. We're, we're done. Jillian, <laughs> thank, thanks for hanging out with us, Jillian. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad we finally got together. I was telling somebody today, I said, when I go on Facebook, this woman that I've never had a conversation with, Jillian, it always tells me that I have more friends in common with her than anybody else. It's like, you have 162 friends in common with Jillian. I'm like, and I've never talked to Jillian. So I'm glad we finally got to do this. But what's coming up on Everyday Courage? Everyday Courage this season is about marriage and money. 
and how to communicate about it, how to talk about it, and specifically how to really understand how your childhood experiences and early adult experiences kind of shaped how you respond to money situations so that you can explain those to your spouse. Because that was probably 90% of me and my husband's fights when we first got married is us both having big, peculiar reactions to money and not really understanding why we were reacting that way and definitely not being able to communicate that to the other person. I saw you spoke recently with uh, our mutual friend, Andy Hill from Marriage, Kids and Money about therapy, like about their money fights. It can be helpful to have someone facilitate those conversations for you. Sure. And that's Everyday Courage, where finer podcasts are distributed. (laughs) That's going to do it for today, everybody. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Doug, you've got it from here, my friend. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our roundtable discussion. Being behind financially is exhausting. Leveraging the people and resources around you might make all the difference to your financial future, while remembering that the past doesn't equal tomorrow. Second, digital banking? Turns out there are lots of great banking features available no matter where you are. You don't have to be locked into the bank in your backyard anymore. But the big lesson... You know, if Shakespeare was alive today, he wouldn't be put in a box to talk like a dude who lived hundreds of years ago. He's original, and so are we. None of that formal talk around these parts anymore. Seriously, if Shakespeare were alive today, you know what he'd be saying? Let me out of this coffin. <laughs> it's so good. So good. Hey, Steve, uh, put a little ba-dump bump in there to really make that joke land. You know what I mean? I mean <laughs> that joke never gets old. But seriously, he'd, he'd really want out of that box. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To hear more from Jillian Johnsrud, just tune in to Everyday Courage wherever you listen to podcasts. To see what Len Penzo has to say, just head over to lenpenzo.com. And thanks to Steve Schnall for joining us. You'll learn more about Quantic Bank at Quantic.com. That's Q-U-O-N-T-I-C.com. This show is created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
Welcome to the after show, Jillian. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens in this part of the show stays here. You're not allowed to talk about it. And people violate that, by the way, all the time. So if you have to have to talk about it, then you can call it dessert. But that's, <laughs> but that's it. Just talk about dessert. Paula was talking about unspoken workplace rules. And I mean, I think all of us that have worked in a workplace have either violated an unspoken workplace rule and went, oops, or you have had somebody around you violate those. And I'm not talking about the high-minded stuff that the man from Harvard probably is speaking with Paula about, but I'm talking about like, who never learned the lesson to not steal crap and other people's lunch out of the refrigerator? <laughs> like seriously, did every, did, have, have you worked in a workplace where that happened? Cause I feel like every workplace I worked in, there was one person and everybody knew who it was. It was just stealing other people's food out of the refrigerator. Mm. I don't know. Unspoken was that workplace. to anybody? Was that to any? Was that to any? Because <laughs> that's happened. That's happened to my work. It's like people have had their lunches completely, their whole lunch stolen out of the refrigerator. It's, it's amazing. Like, it is amazing. I mean, you think you're making that up? That is not true. That happens in my workplace, and you so wonder what the tip, heck. If you bring the worst lunch, yours never gets stolen. <laughs> well, it'll only get stolen once. Jillian, yeah. it'll get stolen once and it'll never get stolen again. And then people are like, oh, she's bringing lentils that's right. it's with canned <laughs> corn. I've never oh, that, taken that's that Jillian. Lentils and canned I've corn. Her, I've tasted her cooking. <laughs> Forget it. What other uh, unspoken rules? Or have you guys stepped in one? Have you stepped in an unspoken rule? Well, I certainly, I remember when I first entered the workforce, I had no understanding of the politics of who gets copied on an email. There's like a whole political intrigue of like, what does it mean? At, who gets the two line versus who gets the CC line? And when is it proper to BCC somebody? And when should someone be included on an email thread versus when should they not be? Like, there's a whole like flow chart oh, to this. That, <laughs> oh, that is a great one because uh, let me just take it one extra step. It's really, it's the reply all versus reply to only the person who sent the original email. We'll have these mass mailings go out on email and then somebody else will make a, you know, it's a general email about general company business, totally innocuous. It goes out to the whole company, right? Thousands and thousands of people. And then somebody will reply and they'll reply to all. Oh. And if somebody else replies to all and it's and now you've got thousands and thousands of another one. And then this happens. Then somebody goes replying to all again. Hey, would you stop this? You're you're spamming up my email box. And then somebody else would reply to all. Yeah, stop it. And then somebody <laughs> would defend themselves. Reply to all. Hey, that wasn't me. It was an accident. You know, just relax. And before you know it, it's just it's out of control. The reply, don't hit reply all unless you absolutely have to. <laughs> when I was at American Express, the office manager uh, who ran the day-to-day -day operation and the office head worked together all the time on projects. And there was an email that went from the office manager to the head of the office that said, hey, what time do you want to go have dinner tonight? And that was no big deal because Ann and Tony met all the time. And we're always talking about stuff that didn't sink them. What sank them was when she did the, uh, the retrieval. Oh yeah. Yeah. The recall. Yeah. yeah the recall never works. 
Yeah. Then like three minutes later, you get this email recall and what was an innocuous thing that nobody thought anything about when she went to recall it. And now, by the way, they have been married for many, many years. Like they've, they've seriously been married for 15 years, but they, they tried to hide that there was something going on. And, uh, yeah. Oops. Yeah, that's the another re- rule. Don't don't hit the recall. That just draws attention to yourself. <laughs> it totally did. I saw the first email and I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. And three minutes later, I'm like, that's a big deal. <laughs> I, I've done that, I think, three times tried to recall. And every time I get the message, but, you know, recall failure, you know, it's like, of course it failed. You know, so nobody's going to accept the recall. They're going to yeah. open that email up. Jillian, any unspoken workplace rules that you can think of that you've either violated or had somebody around you? awkwardly step on? Yeah, but I've worked a lot of weird jobs. (laughs) I've worked in a lot of weird places. And I, my gosh, I used to have this boss that was an alcoholic and would drink like a 24 pack every night and watch us on the the camera. But then sometimes would like, wait a minute, would like sit in their office and drink? (laughs) Yeah. And just, and just stare at us. Sometimes we'd invite friends over to stare at us while we worked. Um, and I remember sometimes he would come out and like spray soda all over the walls, which we then had to clean up until like midnight. And finally I was like, buddy, buddy, this isn't working for me. Like, it's okay if you want to get drunk in your office, but like, you just got to stay there. Like no more meandering out at eight, eight, nine, ten p.m. to like wreak havoc on the employees. Oh, that is so damn creepy! Like that's just creepy, super creepy. <laughs> oh my god! I, but it was like their evening hobby, you know. Find some people over, stare at the teenagers while they work. It was like reality TV, except I was the star. I was going to say it's either reality TV or a lawsuit waiting to happen, <laughs> one, or, one or the other. Yeah, oh. but the new employees like didn't. It took a while to like here's here's company culture. Let me just warn you what you're in for because might not uh, might not be accustomed to this. Was it, that'd be my first day and my last day. Paula, you're you're looking like you've got one. Oh no no I no. no she's like <laughs> I can't beat it. It's like I'm out. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. Of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 